Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Uh, Anna and AJ, congratulations guys. Hey, if you guys don't know Anna and AJ, they just got married last weekend, and so if you don't know them, get to know them. They're back there in the corner hiding out, kind of embarrassed, I think, right now. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. Hmm. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting this morning, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Waterbrook. I'm the pastor for student and young adult ministries. Crown students, welcome uh, back to the area. It's good to see you all. Uh, I'm going to throw a little curveball at us this morning. Not a huge one, a little one, and I'm telling you it's coming, and so it's, not, it's hardly even a curveball. Um, the, the sermon title on your handout is A Clash of Kingdoms, and it says that we're going down through verse 21, which Colton just read. Uh, we're not going to 21. We're going to stop at verse 17 this morning, and uh, rather than looking at the, the dynamics of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, we're going to look at the compassion of Jesus. Um, so that's uh, the new sermon title, if you're a note taker, The Compassion of Christ. Um, yesterday, when I was kind of putting on my uh, editing and cutting down because I always have way more to say than I can, and uh, you, <laughs> you all suffer that sometimes. Um, man, the Lord just showed me how badly I needed to be reminded of his compassion. Um, I mean, who doesn't need to be reminded of the compassionate, overwhelming love of Jesus? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to... Um, to help us not just know the compassion of Christ, but to experience this compassion this morning because, my goodness, there are areas in our lives that we've kind of stiff-armed God, huh? And uh, let's pray that he would actually go there this morning. So, Father, we, we need you this morning. We thank you that you delight to draw near to your people. We thank you, God, that as your word is opened up, it is you who speaks to us and not me. So come, Holy Spirit, show us and help us experience the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ and his compassionate heart towards sinners and sufferers like us. Jesus, be exalted. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Um, I want to start by asking you to think of a time in your life when you have felt most loved by someone. Go to a memory. Just think about a time in your life when you experienced love like you haven't before. For me, uh, as I was thinking about this, it was a time uh, when I was a bit younger. I was, uh, I, you know, I was I was a young uh, young adult, so I wasn't I wasn't like a kid. But I was living at my my folks' home and. Uh, I had been lying to them, I had been manipulating, I had been, uh, you know, deceiving them, been hiding from them, uh, <laughs> over and over for quite some time. I was living a lie. And, you know, we had a deal, my, my folks and I, that, and the deal was that 
as long as I was on the straight and narrow and being honest with him, I could live with him. Um, but if I wasn't, then I had to go. That's reasonable. Um, and so you can, you can see why I was terrified to, to tell them what was really going on. The consequences was I was going to be kicked out of the house again, on my own again. And I just clearly wasn't ready for that. I had deep immaturity issues to work through. And um, so I was terrified. But, but, but by the grace of God, I had this overwhelming sense of conviction about it all. Uh, it was like God was, was, was driving into my soul, and, and I couldn't, couldn't live in it anymore. I mean, you guys know what it's like to live a double life and how you just you break eventually. So I remember waking up one morning, and I was just undone. Um, <laughs> like, w- wake up immediately under conviction and crying, right? Um, so I get the courage to call my mom, and I determine I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come clean today, no matter the cost, whatever, whatever that means. Uh, and so I, so I call her, and I'm a blubbering mess. I'm, I'm both terrified and weeping, and I can hardly say a word, and my mom's at the other end of the line, and she says, Sean, what's going on? You know, and through, like, sobs and all of that and snot, and, you know, I said, Mom, I've been lying to you and Dad. It's all been a lie. It's what I've been doing silence. My heart sinks. This is it. I'm getting the boot. Getting kicked out again. And then my mom responds and she says, we know, John. We're your parents. We're not stupid. We know you better than you think we do. She said, um, are you ready for help? I can leave. I can leave and come home right when the day's over and and I can help you find the help that you, you need. And John, you don't have to be alone in this. I'll walk with you through it. You see, in that moment, my mom could have, rightly so, kicked me out. I deserved that. I'd broken our deal. And yet she showed me the compassion of Jesus and direction. And my life has never been the same since that moment. Francis Schaeffer, he's a 20th century uh, pastor and apologist. He once stated this. He said, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, and I might add postmodernism, nor the old Roman Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism. He says, all these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Jesus said the same thing in John, same thing in John 6, 63. He said, he said it plainly. He said, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. In our sermon text today, Luke is showing us that, that Jesus is the exact opposite of self-righteous legalists. Jesus' heart floods with compassion towards sinners and sufferers. Legalists get annoyed when people don't fit their agenda. And so what we need to know today is that Jesus is at work in the world by his liberating compassion, not by legalistic coercion. I mean, how many of us have been beaten down by the unending demands of legalism? And how many of us have finally found sweet refuge for our souls in the deep, compassionate grace of Jesus Christ? I mean, who doesn't need compassion from Christ today? And so in our text, we're going to see two sides of Jesus' compassion. 
The first one is that Jesus' compassion sets us free from our bondage of sin and suffering. And number two, Jesus' compassion keeps us free from self-righteous legalism. So, number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus' compassion sets us free from the bondage to sin and suffering. Verse 10 and 11 reads this. He says, Now when he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So here's the scene. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's teaching. We've seen this before in Luke's gospel. In fact, this is the last time in Luke's gospel that we're going to see Jesus in the synagogue. That says a lot. Remember, in in, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He, he He has left Galilee and his ministry there, and he's headed to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And so here's Jesus on... Uh, a Sabbath day in a synagogue between Galilee and Jerusalem. And, and, and we've seen this before in Luke's gospel. There's this typical pattern that we see when Jesus, the Son of God, is in a, a synagogue on a Sabbath. In, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is kind of kicking off his Galilean ministry, uh, we see him in the synagogue and teaching. And, <laughs> and he's there, and he, he makes the astonishing claim that the prophecy of Isaiah 61 was fulfilled in him. He, he opened up the scroll and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says that he rolled up the scroll, looked and said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. You would expect that the people there would be like going wild, excited, thanking God, praising God, freedom at last. But by the end of his teaching, they try throwing Jesus off a cliff. See, Jesus is poking at their self-righteous bubbles. They don't like it. Or in Luke chapter 6, the next time we see Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath, he's there teaching again, and, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are just, are just waiting to catch him to see if he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath. Right? They're, just, they're just ready to pounce on him. To, to the, he's breaking some of their rules, and, and they just want to catch him. And of course, Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. And you would think, again, that folks would be excited and thankful. Praise God. There's a man who's done things that we've never seen before in our mess. And yet, by the end of his teaching, they begin to plot as to how they're going to get rid of Jesus. He's poking at their self-righteous bubbles again, and they don't like it. And so here we are in Luke chapter 13, and Jesus is back in the synagogue, <laughs> teaching on a Sabbath. We just know something's about to go down. There's a woman in the gathering. She's in rough shape. She's been suffering for 18 long years. I imagine she's tried everything to fix herself. The passage doesn't give us any indication that she has done anything wrong that causes disability. This isn't punishment from God. In fact, Luke says that this woman has a disabling spirit. And in verse 16, Jesus says that she has been bound by Satan. 
She's spiritually oppressed and is causing her physical distress. Now, I'm not saying, nor is the Bible, that every physical disability that we have is caused by Satan and that root is a spiritual cause. I'm not saying that. The Bible's not saying that either. Uh, But we do know that there's a very real category in which that fits. For example, uh, anxiety. The Bible talks about anxiety as a spiritual problem in a lot of ways, not trusting in God. And we all know that anxiety has loads of physical uh, repercussions on us. But that's not always the case, is it? What Luke is telling us here is not that every one of our illnesses, we have to repent of some sin. What he's saying is that we live in a world that is cursed. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We live in a world where Satan is real and he seeks to devour humanity. He's the enemy of God and he hates us. We really do have an enemy that's prowling around like a lion seeking to devour us. You know, in our our westernized world, I don't think we take spiritual warfare as seriously as the Bible does. I think in a lot of ways, we've actually bought into, whether we would say this or we just live this way, we've bought into the idea that what we see and what we can measure and what we can feel and experience, that's basically all that there is. The Bible does not have that category at all. The Bible is crystal clear that there are things going on in the unseen realm that have massive implications for our lives here and now. So Luke is saying, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Saying that Satan is real, demons are real. He's also saying that sin is real. Sin is like a a parasite that's been unleashed into the world and it seeps into every crevice of our existence and not one of us is unaffected by it. I mean, all of our thoughts are tainted by selfishness. All of our emotions are a little bit out of whack. All of our desires tend to be corrupted in some way, shape, or form, sometimes greater and sometimes smaller. I had uh, friends who used to tell me all the time, God bless friends like this, uh, they would always tell me, John, your mind is like a bad neighborhood. You don't want to go there alone. (laughs) But if we just stop and think about the things that go through our minds, it's crazy, isn't it? I'm not alone in this. I know. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit more crazy than most of you, but I'm not the only crazy person here. (laughs) Right? You see, not all of us uh, may have physical disabilities. Not all of us are bent over and unable to straighten ourselves, but all of us know what it's like to be spiritually oppressed. All of us know what it's like to be plagued by sin, tempted by Satan in our flesh. We all know what it's like to live in a world where we're tempted to exalt ourselves and our own agendas rather than loving God and and seeking his kingdom, to use people so that we might look great rather than loving people because Christ loves them. We know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to be full of shame and guilt and fear. We know what it's like to be shocked at the unthinkable capacity that we have to mess things up. And we know what it's like to not be able to fix ourselves. I mean, how many times have we sworn that today's the day, I'm not doing it tomorrow, and yet here we are again? Right? So we can, why don't we just put down our self-defense and just admit, man, we're a lot like this woman, and we need desperate help. 
Maybe we're suffering physically. Maybe we struggle with sin. At the end of it all, we can relate to this woman, can't we? So let's slow down and look at what Jesus does with this woman and us. Let's read verses 12 and 13 together. It says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Now I don't want us to just brush over this. This is, this is the compassionate grace of Jesus in action on full display. So let's, let's look at this step by step. If you're taking notes, we see first that Jesus saw her. He saw her. And he sees you. And he sees me. Undoubtedly, many have seen her over the years. I wonder how they saw her. I wonder if they saw her as their personal project to be fixed. I wonder if they saw her as an embarrassment to be avoided. I wonder if they saw her as a hindrance to the kingdom of God. What about her? How do you think she saw her? That's an odd question, but I think it's one worth considering, isn't it? I mean, I think we simultaneously think way too highly of ourselves and way too lowly of ourselves all at the same time. If we just think about it for a moment, we are obsessed with ourselves, aren't we? We would love ourselves. We're, we're just constantly thinking about me, myself, and I. And at the very same time, we are acutely aware that we don't even meet our own standards. So I think we simultaneously like, exalt ourselves and beat ourselves up more than anyone else does. What about us? How do we look, or how do we see, how do we notice those around us? When you see someone who's really struggling, how do you react? Do you avoid eye contact? Do you look at them and then notice that they're looking at you and, and need and then you look away? You see, we, we, we know instinctively that actually seeing people is risky. Why, why do we look away when we see people who are suffering? Just this last week, Chelsea and I were down in South Florida, and it's like, of, of course this happened. Um, I'm just so convicted. Uh, you know, and down in South Florida, there's like way more homeless folks and uh, people who are panhandling on street corners and at the stoplights. And, and so you'll be sitting in your car at a stoplight, and um, I mean, folks with signs who are, who are asking for money or help, they'll just like, they won't just stand on the corner. They'll walk right up to your window and like stare at you with their sign. I'll be sitting in the driver's seat like looking and not wanting to make eye contact because if I make eye contact, I'm obligated, it feels like. Or, you know, like there's just this weird, awkward tension, right? Have, have you guys ever been in a situation like that or am I alone in that? Okay, good. We can, we can re resonate to that. <laughs> Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Here's what Paul Miller says. He's an author. He says this. He says, we instinctively know that love leads to commitment. So we look away when we see a beggar. We might have to pay if we look too closely and care too deeply. Loving means losing control of our schedule, our money, and our time. When we love, we cease to be the master and become a servant. Notice what he says there. He, he, he's connecting looking closely with loving deeply. 
Now the easiest thing is to see others in their sin and their sufferings, and, and we know the cost of loving, so we simply look away. Friends, that is not how Jesus sees us. You see, uh, when Jesus sees us in our sin and suffering, compassion floods his heart. The gaze of Jesus doesn't recoil away in fear of commitment. The, the loving eyes of Jesus sees us as we really are, and he gladly moves towards us. He, it's like he can't help himself. He, his heart just bursts open with love and compassion when he sees us. You see, when Jesus sees us, it's not a dehumanizing look that just confirms our suspicion that we're worthless. The gaze of Jesus actually gives us our dignity back. Now, I'm not sure what you're going through at this moment. I'm not sure what sin and suffering you may be experiencing right now. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're trying to hide because you're just terrified that if people actually saw you as you really are, they'd recoil away. But what we all need to know today is that Jesus actually sees us, and he's not looking away. He's not ashamed. He's not looking away thinking that we're just too big of mess-ups that's not worth his effort. He's not looking at you or me with a judgmental snark. He's looking at you with eyes of compassion by which love swells up in his heart and bursts forth towards you. This is our Savior. He sees you. And shouldn't that mean that we slow down long enough to see one another Shouldn't we actually dare to notice one another? Now, I don't know about you, but on an average Sunday morning, it is easy for me to ping pong from person to person to person and never slow down long enough to actually see. Imagine what this would be like if we actually saw one another. So what, do we, what does Jesus do when he sees us? What should we do when we dare to actually slow down long enough to love someone and see someone? Number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus calls us to himself. Verse 12 says, when he saw her, he called her over. The compassion of Jesus sets us free because his compassion compels us, compels him to call us to himself. Now here's, here's, here's what I said. Listen, Simply feeling deep emotions towards people doesn't set anyone free. Being brought to Jesus does. And this is what Jesus does with us, right? He, he calls us to himself. And I, I love this. I mean, honestly, praise God. What other hope do we have? We don't need more instructions as to how to fix ourselves. We've tried that. We've failed. We need a redeemer. The problem is, right, when we get afraid, don't we? When, when, the, when the gaze of someone comes upon us, we feel exposed, and so we hide and recoil away. But praise God that our freedom isn't contingent upon us and our capacity to get it all together and become lovable. Our freedom is contingent upon his calling us to himself. And here's the good news. When Jesus calls someone, it's as good as done. Romans 8.30, we know this verse. And those whom he predestined, he also called 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Waterbrook, the call of God originates in his predestining love towards us. In other words, before eternity began, God looked upon you and upon me and our sin and our suffering. He said, I love that woman. I love that man. I will have them in my family. They are mine. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get them into my family. He calls us. In other words, before we did anything lovable or unlovable, God has set his love upon you or me, which means that his calling is unshakable, it's unstoppable, it's unconditional. See, God's not looking down the corridors of time and seeing who might choose him in order that he would call us. No, he's not looking for the wise in order to call. He's not looking for the powerful in order to call. He's not looking for those who have it together in order to call. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says this. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, this is good news. We don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to be wiser, stronger, or more acceptable in order to belong. Friends, do you realize that if you're in Christ, the God of the universe has called you to himself? And there is nothing that you or I have done to deserve this, which means that he must really actually desire for you to be in his family. His welcome isn't superficial, nor does he regret calling you. You belong to God because of God. How freeing is that? We don't have to fear being abandoned by him. We're safe. Friends, you're safe here because God is here. And he says that anyone who comes to him through his son is welcome. The fact that God calls him to himself, calls us to himself by his sheer grace and compassion, not by anything that we have done, should make us the most welcoming, the most thankful, the most humble people on the planet. We're not holier than thou. We have nothing to boast about whatsoever other than the amazing compassion of Jesus towards us. Jesus sets us free from our bondage by doing all the heavy lifting. Praise God. Praise God. So Jesus sees us. Jesus calls us. Next we see Jesus speak words of hope. He said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. It just keeps getting better and better for this woman. I imagine other people have prayed for her before and praise God for those who pray for healing. I imagine others have encouraged her before, praise God for encouragement. But never until this moment has someone spoken to her with such power that she was actually set free. And this is what Jesus does for us. This is what Jesus will do for us. You see, when God calls us to himself, his word of hope for us is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus loves sinners like you and me. It's the good news that the work of salvation is finished. The work is accomplished. 
It's the good news that our sin is paid for. Our guilt is atoned for. Our shame is covered with his honor. It's the good news that because of his death on the cross and resurrection, we have a hope that will never put us to shame. Friends, Jesus, if you're in Christ, has set you free totally, completely, undeniably from the penalty of sin, the power of sin. There is no condemnation. You are forgiven and free. You are justified before God. But he does not promise that we won't suffer at least in this lifetime. A lot of us will continue to suffer until we see Jesus face to face. But we know, without a shadow of doubt, that resurrection is coming. We know that when he cracks the sky and returns, he will make all things new. We know that our time on earth is short and fleeting compared to eternity with God. Friends, there is coming a day when there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more suffering. Our agony will be undone and everything sad will become untrue. Revelation 21 says this. It says that he, that is God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Waterbrook, we have rock-solid hope. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. What you're going through isn't the end of the story. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we won't limp all our way into glory, but don't lose heart. Jesus really did rise from the dead, and he really is going to return to make all things new. You see, Jesus has set us free from our bondage to sin and death, and he will always walk with us in our suffering until he returns and undoes everything that's ungodly. And brothers and sisters, we need to remind one another of this all the time, don't we? I don't know about you, but I need you to remind me that when I'm struggling, when, I, when all I can see is the hardships and the trials in front of me, I need you to remind me, John, there's a new day coming. John, this isn't the end of the story. John, God is still with us. John, God's promises are still sure. God, John, God has not left the building. I need you to remind me of these things, and we need to remind one another of these things all the time, don't we? We need hope. Jesus has given us real words of hope. <laughs> it's unshakable, unchangeable rock solid. And friends, we get to stand on that hope. Jesus sets us free from the bondage of sin and suffering. So how do we know? Here's the question. How do we know that we're living in the freedom that Christ has given us? How do we know if his compassion is actually seen from our heads to our hearts? Look at the last phrase in verse 13. It says that she glorified God. That's freedom. This woman was finally set free to do what she was created to do. Can you imagine what this woman was like at that moment? Just imagine, she's probably singing for joy, praising God, being, being that lady in the synagogue, right? But this is amazing. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure you can't imagine what that was like. Because all of us who have received the liberating grace of Jesus, we know what it's like to have our hearts set free to finally worship God. 
We just don't care anymore <laughs> what anyone thinks. We're just so captivated by Jesus, so overwhelmed by his love for us. All we want to do is live for him. We can't get enough of Jesus. Suddenly, we're that person who's talking about God everywhere we go. <laughs> That's freedom. You know that you're living in the freedom of the gospel when your heart sings for joy and your heart is captivated by the glory of God. When he becomes the object of your affections, when you live for Christ alone. Our mission statement here is that we seek to be captivated by Jesus. That's part of it. Captivated by Jesus. This woman has been, been bent over for 18 years. Jesus touches her, heals her. She sits up and the first face that she sees is King Jesus. She's captivated. That's how we know we're living in the freedom that God has given us. But that's not always our experience, is it? Why is that? Unfortunately, I think we find out that we're a lot more like the ruler of the synagogue than we care to admit. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story either. And this brings us to our second point. The next part of Jesus' compassion that we see is that Jesus' compassion keeps us free from the bondage, <clears throat> bondage of self-righteous legalism. Listen, you can count on it. Whenever Jesus shows up and begins to set people free and they're captivated by him and his gospel and the, 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 the bondage of shame and sin is undone, legalism will always be lurking in the shadows seeking to regain control. Look at verse 14. It says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. To be clear, the promised seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of Satan just showed up. The offspring of Abraham who's going to bless the nations just showed up. The, the prophet greater than Moses who had a more authoritative, heart-transforming word just showed up. The, 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 the heir of David whose throne would be forever and ever and his dominion would have no end just showed up. Isaiah's 53 suffering servant who would pay for the guilt of his people just showed up. And this religious leader is indignant. That's sad. The sad insanity of self-righteousness is that we actually believe that we don't need saving. The sad insanity of self-righteousness is that we would rather be lords of our own lives than Jesus. Now, perhaps that's why some of you who are here this morning aren't Christians. You refuse to admit that you actually need saving and that you can't fix your own problems. You're set on being in charge of your own lives. You're just full of pride. You have 10,000 self-defense excuses as to why you're not really that bad. And why Christianity is really just for weaklings and you're above it all. Now if that's you this morning, <laughs> I want you to imagine what it would be like to get off that hamster wheel of always having to be good enough and trust in Jesus and be free. Friends, you don't have to fix your own problems because Jesus is who he says he is and he really did come into the world to save sinners. If that's you this morning, come to Jesus. Just quit playing the game. Come to Jesus. 
If you're on the fence, I promise you the grass is green on this side. Others of us, though, are genuine Christians. Right? God has humbled us and showed us our desperate need for his saving and forgiveness, and he called us to himself, and, and we've repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus, but somewhere along the way, we've begun to take control of our lives again. There's this story of this uh, Romanian pastor and this American pastor who were riding in a car together, together during an uh, evangelistic uh, revival. And uh, while they're riding together, the American pastor looks over at the Romanian pastor, and you can almost hear the smugness in his voice, right? He says, hey, tell me, what do you think about American Christianity? And uh, at first, uh, the Romanian respectfully declines to answer. And the, the American kind of prods him for more and, you know, says, no, no, I can handle it. I'm a, I'm a big boy. Uh, reluctantly, eventually, the Romanian pastor says, well, um, in American Christianity, the big word is commitment. You guys are always talking about committing. Committing to Jesus. Committing to serving. Committing to missions. Committing to outreach. Committing to this and committing to that. We're just committing, committing, committing to everything. And the, and the American guy, he kind of says, oh, yeah, you know, that's, kind of a, that's a good thing, though, right? Romania says, well, no, not exactly. Not necessarily. You see, when you commit to something, you're still in control. And the New Testament talks about surrendering. When you surrender, you're no longer in control. So here's a question that we have to ask ourselves. What makes us indignant or annoyed? And Why? Now we can be righteously angry. I get that, fair enough, no doubt. But I'd be willing to bet that most of the time we're angry, annoyed, upset because we aren't getting our way. Because things aren't going according to our plan, according to our expectations. We, we feel control just slipping through our fingers. Which begs the question, whose kingdom are we really seeking to build? See, this is the heart of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is all about building our own little kingdoms, and we end up seeing people either as helps to our kingdom-building projects or hindrances to our kingdom-building projects. Here's what Paul Miller says again. He says, uh, when we are self-righteous, rigidity protects us, and it also keeps our world from getting murky. When everything is clearly defined and everyone put in their place, with us as the righteous, of course, then we can relax. This is a line that we need to consider. He says, sinners remind Pharisees that they're okay. You see, when Jesus shows up and begins to set people free, our self-righteousness is exposed for what it really is, and we panic. People aren't playing the roles anymore. Look at what the ruler of the synagogue does here in this moment. He doesn't even address Jesus. He speaks to the gathering of the people. What's he doing there? He's trying to regain his control. He's trying to maintain his power. He wants it to be about him. <laughs> he doesn't want to be... He doesn't want Jesus to be Lord. He wants himself to be Lord. And so when we read this passage, we have to ask the question, okay, am I, am I supposed to identify with the woman who is unable to fix herself, 
who is beat up and broken? Or am I more like the ruler of the synagogue? Here's my take on it. I think in reality, we're all just like the woman. But the sinfulness and wickedness of our hearts actually wants us to be Jesus, and so we end up acting like the ruler of the synagogue. God help us. Notice how Jesus responds. He keeps us back from falling into the bondage of self-righteous legalism by both exposing us and correcting us. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? See, Jesus' compassion for this woman compelled him to be corrective with the ruler of the synagogue. Don't confuse compassion with not being corrective. Praise God that Jesus exposes and corrects our self-righteousness. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, if, you're, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. The question at hand here was regarding the Sabbath. The, the day of the week that according to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, Israel was to keep holy. Now, now this is crazy. If you slow down and think about this just, just long enough, these guys actually thought that the heart of God and the gift of the Sabbath was that animals could go free on the Sabbath day, but not people. Really? That's insane. Now look at what Jesus does, though. He, he doesn't say that the Sabbath isn't important, that we should stop, t- stop taking it so seriously. He, he actually says that, that, that we need to get to know our God a bit better so that we might actually know the purpose of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was a day when everything was supposed to be put right again. It was a day that God had given to his people that we might trust in him and his provisions. It's a day that we were to remember our redemption. It's a day when those who were servants could find rest. It's a day that anticipated the day when, when he would return and make all things new and we would enter into his eternal rest. The Sabbath was a day of freedom, not a day of bondage. Jesus is saying that the Sabbath day is actually the perfect day for this woman to find healing. Here's what Peter uh, Leithert says. He says the Sabbath is unparalleled in the ancient world. It spreads out from the seventh day to fill the nooks and crannies of Israel's life. Indentured servants were held for six years, released on the seventh. Debt isn't allowed to become a permanent burden. Land could be sold for 50 years, seven Sabbath years plus one, but reverted back to the original owners at Jubilee. At the center of the calendar in Leviticus 23, the Lord reminds Israel to care for the needy. Torah calls Israel to justice, mercy, and faithfulness, a Sabbath way of life, Isaiah 58. From this, it's clear that Jesus never broke Sabbath nor made exceptions. Jesus keeps the Sabbath by giving relief to the distressed. Do you see what self-righteousness does? It takes a beautiful gift from God, twists it up, turns it upside down, puts us on the throne, and starts to use it as a weapon. Now, this is amazing. The rest of the New Testament makes the claim that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ, is our Sabbath rest, which means for Christians, every day of the week is a day of joy and celebration and freedom and liberation. Praise be to God. 
You see, Christianity is all about being set free to live as we were created to, to glorify God, to love deeply, to, to live our lives in and among the people of God, our new family, to take risks for the sake of the gospel and, and living on mission. So not only is self-righteousness insanely delusional, it's insanely restrictive and suffocating. I would know. <laughs> Pray for me. I'm like the captain of self-righteousness. Praise God for his correction. You see, Jesus exposes and corrects all of us. So we walk with him, we'll regularly see where we're hypocritical. But he does it to keep us free from the bondage that he's rescued us out of. Now, the good news of the gospel is that we aren't saved by not being self-righteous. The, the good news of the gospel is that we're saved because Jesus Christ, the perfect Holy One of God, has given us his righteousness by grace alone. S- 2 Corinthians 5.21, we know this verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, on the cross, Jesus was treated like the self-righteous religious rulers that we all are so that we might be treated like the very Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath, and enter and hit his rest. Amen. Praise God. And so we hear this, we're exposed. Jesus comes on the scene, he starts setting people free. He's, he's reorienting our expectations. He's, he is establishing himself as Lord and Savior. And there's two responses. There's two responses. Look at verse 17. It says, as he says these things, all, his, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Friends, do you rejoice at the good news of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done? Or are you hiding in shame? Jesus is calling you to come out of shame. The water is cool in his grace. I want to close by sharing a story of a friend of mine. Um, Maybe 10 10 plus years or so ago, um, this friend of mine, he... uh, got out of serving in the, as a Marine. And he had experienced and witnessed things that he never anticipated, never wanted to, never thought that he would. And uh, he was just full of bitterness and despair and anger. And uh, he was suicidal. And so um, you know, he was planning his, his, his suicide and he had this thought, you know what, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to church. And if no one says anything to me, if no one comes up to me, if no one approaches me, then I'm done that night. Um, you know, he was, he was angry at God. And this was his way of vindicating and justifying his anger. And so he shows up to church that evening and he's got his hood on and he's looking down as lots of folks do when we're burdened by the brokenness of our own sin in this world. And he shows up a little bit early, and folks are in the lobby talking and chatting, and, and of course, no one comes up to him. And as the service is about to start, folks are leaving the lobby and going into the, into the sanctuary, and, um, and he's thinking to himself, well, of course, right, yeah, I knew this. God doesn't actually care. These people are a bunch of hypocrites. Until suddenly, he feels a tap on his shoulder. And he turns around, and he's greeted by someone he's never seen before, a complete stranger, and the guy says, hey, I haven't seen you here before. What's your name? I'm so-and-so. My friend in that moment 
decides he has nothing to lose, so he just spills his guts. Talks about the things he's witnessed. Talks about the anger and hatred he has towards God. Talks about his deep despondency and despair. Talks about his being suicidal. Just lets it all out. And now this, this guy who greeted him, mind you, he's not like one of the pastors or elders. He's not a counselor. He's just a normal person. A young guy. <laughs> and he's listening to this. And he just goes, man, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be going through what you're going through. I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like. It must be way harder than I could even imagine. I'm not going to sit here and give you some platitude. But what I can say is that if you, if you need someone to just talk to, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly listen. I said, but hey, uh, service is about to start. Do you want to sit with me? They went into service. The Lord saved my friend that night. The Lord called him to himself that night and set him free from his sin. And now he has had lots of ups and downs since then, right? He had to work through his anger and his bitterness. But, but Jesus was with him every step of the way. And, and, and now, you know, he's, he's an active member in that church. He's serving in the church. He's making disciples. And this man's life was totally turned upside down. He's married and got a couple of kids and they're being raised up to know Jesus and love Jesus. Everything changed and it all started with someone noticing him. It all started with the compassion of Jesus compelling someone to see him. You don't have to be the hero. Just have to see him and invite him to Jesus. And nothing has been the same. So, Waterbrook, we're uh, about to take the Lord's Supper together. And um, Pastor Gabe is going to come up and lead us in a song of reflection. And during this time, here's, here's how I think we ought to respond to this, or at least consider this. Some of us this morning need to put down our defenses with a particular area of suffering in our life and let Jesus' compassion go there. Maybe we need to believe that Jesus actually does care about this particular area of suffering in our lives. We need to believe that. And so maybe for the next few moments, you just got to plead with God to, 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 to show you that he actually is compassionate. Others of us, um, maybe we need to repent of our self-righteousness. Maybe we need to confess to God the areas of our life when we've been angry because we've really been trying to build our own kingdom, the areas of our lives when we've been annoyed because it's more about us than about God and his glory. Maybe we need to repent from our self-righteousness and trust in Jesus. And then after a time of reflection, we're going to celebrate the amazing compassion that Jesus has for us as we take the bread and the cup together. If you uh, need a, if you need a, some elements, uh, raise your hand, and, and Ron will, will be there for you. So let's just take a few moments, wherever you're at, and let God do some work in us. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.